1: Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.
2: How would they feel about the idea that they would booted a descendant of aristocrats out of Downing Street?
3: Well, I think my, my mammal, who I write about and is sort of the hero of the book, she'd probably feel pretty proud of herself. <laughs>
2: Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics in New York. It's Thursday, October 6th. I'm joined by
4: my co-host, Scott Landman, an economics editor in Washington. Hey, Dan. So today we're going to hear about how an impoverished, relatively uneducated group of people in, in a part of the US, often regarded as a backwater, has actually shaken up the political and economic order around the world and and how their lack of power has ironically increased their clout. That's right. A
2: steadily diminishing chunk of the American economy has sent shockwaves far beyond these shores It's the kind of phenomenon that booted Britain out of the EU, David Cameron out of Downing Street, and perhaps set the French far right on a course to the Elysée Palace. So what gives, what connects these threads? J.D. Vance and his new book, Hillbilly Elegy, a story about his journey and his family's journey from Kentucky to Ohio to the Marines to Iraq and now to the world of venture capital in San Francisco. So, JD, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you guys? Congratulations on the book and the remarkable story that you've kind of described as an escape. It's a very timely book. Much of the commentary about it has inevitably focused on the presidential race. I suspect there's a lot more going on than just whether Trump or Clinton takes the oath on January 20. But let's start there. Why do you think your book has captured this sense of the moment?
3: Sure. This is a group of people who are relatively neglected by the media and consequently not a whole lot of folks really understand who they are, where they come from, what they think about And so I really, I think through the book and through the story of my family's history sort of shed a light on this population that is relatively neglected and that folks are very curious about because of, and this is the second reason, because of Donald Trump. This is an area of the country, a part of the the population that is heavily supportive of Donald Trump. And so it's causing a lot of people to ask why, who are these people? Why are they so supportive of Donald Trump? Of course, I don't talk about Trump at all in the book But because I do talk a little bit about the political frustrations and some of the underlying cultural frustrations that exist, I think that people have have sort of grabbed onto my book as an explanation or a partial explanation for the Trump phenomenon.
4: Now, you didn't really set out to write that kind of story to weave what's really a morality tale of the 2016 contest. Was that more of an accident? But first, just to go back, I mean, what really made you put the
3: pen to paper or fingers on the keyboard to start writing this book? So it was definitely an accident, not intentional at all. And what caused me to put pen to paper is that when I was a third-year law student at Yale, one of the things that really troubled me is that I felt like this cultural outsider. It occurred to me that there weren't many other kids like me, meaning white working class kids or black working class kids, frankly, who existed at Yale Law School. And so I really wanted to sort of understand this this problem of upward mobility in the United States, why we had so little of it, why perhaps the area that I came from could sort of explain why there were so few kids like me at places like Yale. And that's really what I set out to do. I wanted to try to answer that question. And that's why I started writing the book. Of course, the Donald Trump thing has, been, um, has caused a lot of attention and, and positive press to go to the book, which I'm appreciative of in, in certain ways. But as I, as I told my wife, maybe it's it's uh, bad for the country, but good for JD's book. So I guess on, on balance, maybe not a good thing.
2: Has there been much interest in your book from across the pond? You know, the first global primal roar of the white working class was perceived to be the Brexit vote. Are Brexit voters and the people you lovingly describe? essentially the same kind of person is there some global connection here
3: Yeah there has definitely been some interest in the UK and we actually when we first started to try to sell the book to overseas publishers no one was really interested but since then we've actually gotten an, a UK publisher and there's been a lot of interest in the UK from the UK press from UK media so I, and I and I definitely think that comes from this this sense that the same population of voters that caused Brexit are the same population of voters that may very well cause a Trump presidency. And so I I do think that there's some connection. There is definitely a large segment of the population of both of these countries and other countries too that feel a little neglected and, and a little left behind by the world economy. So there is some connection. I, I'm not an expert on Brexit, so I won't draw the line too finely, but I, I do think that there are some similarities in the group just from what I've read and what I've seen on bo- in both countries. How
2: now, do you think some of the characters in the book that, again, just to be clear, you lovingly and in some cases reverentially described, it's a very heartfelt story, how would they feel about the idea that they booted a descendant of aristocrats out of Downing Street? <laughs>
3: Well, I think my my mammal, who I write about, and is sort of the hero of the book. I, I think that if you put it like that, she'd probably feel pretty proud of herself. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's a very there's a very strong undercurrent of anti elitism that, that exists in this population, and you know, in some ways, it goes back. To Andrew Jackson and sort of the populist movement in the early 1800s. But I even think it, it, it predates that. I think it goes back to sort of the ancestral history of some of these places. And so there's there's definitely a, an anti-rich and anti-elitism sentiment that runs through a lot of my family, a lot of my culture. And so I, I, I do think maybe my, my grandma would feel pretty happy to think that she had booted an aristocrat out of a 10 Downing Street. Now, you talk a lot in your book about how It's not necessarily
4: these kind of global economic forces that are buffeting the working class people in Ohio and Kentucky. It's more their own choices that have added up over time, multiple partners, taking drugs, things like that. You know, how much of the problems besetting, you know, white working class people today are, you know, as you would you say,
3: their own fault? And how much are the global economy's fault? Sure. Well, it's very complicated and I would say it's both. One of the reasons I focused on the more cultural side of the equation is that I felt that there had just been a lot written about globalization and the way that it had affected the working class. So I decided to focus on something else. But I I, I do think that there's this strong element of culture that that's underlying a lot of these problems. And I don't know that I would say that it's about individual choices so much as it is about cultural expectations. I mean one of the things I write, write about is that when you grow up in an area like this, you really acquire this sense of helplessness, this sense that your choices don't matter, that no matter how hard you work, how much you try to get ahead, nothing that you ever do will actually produce good outcomes. And so that that's not so much a failure of individual responsibility or individual morals, but I think it, it is a cultural problem that isn't necessarily amenable to... You know, flipping the government policy switch or reversing globalization and making that stuff go away. Now that said, I, I do buy into you know the sort of consensus thesis that globalization has been very hard on these areas of the country. So again, it's not so much to me an either-or equation. It's more about everything is is going on here, and I'm trying to understand one side of that 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 equation.
2: I mean, you sketch a community, uh, and it's coming across in your comments now that feels like it has no stake in the modern globalised economy. But, J.D., let me just push you gently there. Should they have a stake? I mean, these don't sound like the people who would vote for a socialist. You talk in your book about reverence for the military and, indeed, the transformative experience that the military had uh, in your life. This is a deeply patriotic group of people. But what could be more American than capitalism? Isn't this just part of the capitalist cycle? Industries rise and fall, regions rise and fall. I mean, it's as American as apple pie, isn't it?
3: Well, in some cases, I don't disagree with you. There's definitely a part of the economy that's cyclical in nature, Industries rise and fall. The steel jobs aren't coming back. The, the coal mines aren't necessarily coming back. And it's definitely important to recognize that as both someone who's living on the ground in these areas, but as a policymaker or a businessman, it's, it's important to recognize that you can't reverse these trends. You can't just go back to the 1960s and hope that everything's going to be okay. But what I, I do think is unique about this, you know, relative to prior periods of economic disruption, is that there is a unique cultural isolation that's going on. So if you think of, you know, Dayton, Ohio, it may just be the case that a fifty-five year old worker in Dayton, Ohio who spent his entire life in manufacturing, that he he may not be able to find a good paying job for the rest of his working life. I think that we we maybe have to fess up to that and admit to that again, both on the Washington side of the equation, but also for people in my own community. But what I do think is really unique is that that guy in Dayton, Ohio, will increasingly live in a concentrated enclave of people who are like him, folks who don't have a whole lot of opportunity, and importantly, his kids will grow up in that sort of secluded enclave of folks who don't have a lot of hope for the future, don't have a lot of optimism about what's possible. And so what's what's unique about this particular moment in history isn't the economic disruption, which is always going to be there. It's that the folks who are economically disrupted are living increasingly segregated lives from the world elites and from folks with financial power.
4: Let's take a break right now to hear a word from our sponsor, and then we'll come back to this idea.
1: Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.
4: All right. Well, I I want to continue, JD, with that idea of cultural isolation. I mean, that, that rings true to me personally. I grew up in the suburbs of new jersey relatively more stable family probably <laughs> than you had but, but you know culturally,
2: distinct, so culturally, culturally di-
4: distinct culturally distinct but still it you know it wasn't until i i was able to live for a few years in san francisco myself that i felt that i was more exposed to the world than before so i want to ask you how do you expand this idea of becoming culturally less isolated you, you refer a little bit in your book to the idea of spreading out Section 8 vouchers some more so they don't take over a community. Does mixed income housing or mixed income communities carry a lot of weight in in maybe having some kind of remedy for this issue?
3: Well, that that would definitely be part of the solution. But my, my much broader sense is that folks from the elites and folks from the working class just don't spend enough time to each other. So part of that is a neighborhood problem. We don't have nearly as many mixed income neighborhoods as we used to. Part of that is is a much more broad geographic isolation. So it's increasingly the case that folks who go off to college, get an education, work in you know relatively high education, high income occupations. They're living in certain cities, they're living in certain parts of the world. And so my, my my sense is that there there's something very unique about this moment in time where the folks who have political and economic power who are perceived to have political and economic power are more and more segregated from the working classes and I don't think it's surprising that that segregation is creating a certain resentment and frustration if for no other reason that it's very easy to caricature you know the the financial and political elites if you don't have any idea what they're actually doing all day if your only real exposure to them is you know on the internet or on television or from some talk radio host.
2: But they now have the power I mean if you look at the narrative of this election campaign and the narrative of Brexit, and I dare say we'll hear more about it in France next year. I mean, they have the power now. It's shaped seemingly the entire contours of the race.
3: Well, they have political power in this particular race, but I don't know that they have sort of long-term engagement with their communities, and those are distinct concepts to me. It's one thing to be able to vote your frustration. It's another thing to not be frustrated in the first place. And my suspicion is that, again, as expected as this economic dislocation is, what is what is really unique is this very broad sense of shared frustration, this idea that there are two classes in America. There are the elites and the people with the political power, and there's everybody else, the folks who are condescended to by the elites, the folks that the elites don't care about. And I really think that that folks you know, like me and you and and, and everybody who's, who's on the, the coast, so to speak, that we have a certain responsibility to make our fellow countrymen feel a little bit more engaged with the world, a little bit more engaged with their political and economic culture. Because if it's the case that a guy in Dayton, Ohio is not just dislocated from the economy, but that his children and grandchildren have no real opportunity to get an education and to integrate with that new world economy, then it's, it's going to create necessary frustrations and alienations. And I think that's what we're really seeing. Let's dwell on that point
2: about the world economy a little bit. And it's not like the characters in your book are completely unaware of things. I thought there was a very interesting passage where you describe when uh, the steel plant, the big employer, took on a Japanese partner. And I think it was your poor poor who said, well, I'm not worried about the Japanese. I'm more worried about the Chinese. Heck, we may end up fighting them one day. Sure. How are they feeling about – we've talked about elites in the United States. How are they feeling about economic forces or economic elites or economic decisions that transcend – The United States.
3: Well, I I don't know how much they're thinking about economic forces that transcend the United States. I mean, my sense is that the perception is that the global economy is working for a few select people in the United States and it's not working for most other people. And so I actually read an article this morning by a Washington Post reporter who went to my hometown and it was interesting that, that he interviewed some folks and they said something to the effect of, they don't necessarily believe the recent positive economic news that came out because they don't necessarily see it in their own communities. And so to the degree that they think about global economic trends, they probably perceive that those trends are something that people in Washington or New York have some control over, that those people living in Washington and New York benefit from, and that they don't really care how those trends impact people like my, my papaw or the folks who are still living in Middletown. There, there is a broad recognition that the global economy is shifting in a really inc- incredible way, but the perception is that it's shifting in a way that benefits rich people in rich countries and poor people in poor countries, but that it doesn't benefit poor people in rich countries. And that, that, that's a very real perception. I think that, that it's definitely rooted in some reality, and that that, again, I don't know that it's a super sophisticated perception, but it does turn back towards those who they believe are controlling those global currents and trends. Now, we, we can talk about these global
4: economic forces and their effects on, on these communities uh, for, for a long time. But to go back to another topic that really uh, pervades your book is the the drug use among members of your family, people in the communities that, as we know from many, many news reports and, and statistics today, is unfortunately you know, killing many, many people. And I I was struck that you didn't really suggest that attacking the drug problem more fiercely would be a, uh, you know, would really help the people in these places. Do you feel that more resources need to be directed toward getting this problem at its core to take the drugs that that are the source of addiction for so many people out and at least helping people get back on their feet or avoid that kind of
3: scourge? Yeah, so so I definitely do. And I think I should say that the, the book is relatively light on policy prescriptions, partially because I felt like it was already long enough and partially just because I, I didn't want to artificially start laying down a number of policy prescriptions that I hadn't necessarily thought that well through. But my sense is that the drug problem is one of the most significant social problems in these parts of the country and that we should definitely devote more resources to trying to solve them. I mean there there are a lot of things that we could do and, and you know one of the things that we should probably be thinking about is trying to change the cultural perception around some of these prescriptions that make it more difficult for folks to overdose or to even have a craving for narcotics in the first place and so you know things like methadone there's a real intense cultural stigma around folks who are using pharmaceuticals to try to combat their drug problem but again I'm I'm sort of in all of the above type person. I think we have to fight this on all fronts and we really need to devote a lot of resources and a lot of focus to this area and this problem because it is something that's it's ripping families apart. It's having disastrous economic consequences and it's of course causing human life in a pretty outrageous way. There's a statistic that I I just find so outrageous and I learned after I wrote the book that in the county that I grew up in last year Deaths from drug overdoses outnumber deaths from natural causes. That's just an extraordinarily bad statistic.
2: JD, again, I just want to come back to, you know, these global trends and the people you describe in the book and their perceptions of their place in the world. Now, you know, there are steel rust belts in China as well. I visited one. Sure. Uh, GM gets a very large chunk of its revenue from China. One of the biggest banks in Mexico is owned by Citigroup, Banamex. Is there any sense that this flows both ways or is this just like a conversation on another planet?
3: Yeah, I, I've never heard much of a recognition that there are rust belts in China I do know that there's a recognition that there are a lot of Chinese workers who are probably mistreated, who don't enjoy the same labor protections as folks in the United States. And so what you'll hear a lot of times is that people recognize that a lot of these jobs are going overseas, and the perception is that part of the reason they're going overseas is that you don't have to pay these workers as well, and you don't have to treat these workers as well. So I don't know that that creates a ton of of sort of affinity or bond between a steel mill worker in Ohio and a steel mill worker in in China. But I I do think it feeds into this idea that there's this amorphous, faceless set of elites who are sort of playing the puppet strings to their own benefit that hurt everyone else in the process. But, you know, I, I will say that you know, certainly recognizing that the Chinese labor laws are imperfect and that Chinese workers don't have the, the best conditions. It is definitely the, the case that globalization has radically reduced global inequality, even as on these sort of micro economy scales, country by country, it's sort of increased inequality. So there is something to the perception that a lot of these global trends are good for poor people in poor countries, but not so good for poor people in rich countries. I don't is think there it's a, totally made right, up. Right.
2: But is there a perception that the US and US employers benefit as much from globalization as the supposed people in China and Mexico who are, quote, eating our lunch, unquote?
3: Oh, absolutely. There's definitely a recognition. It's, it's sort of folks feel that there are two people who are benefiting. It's, it's the workers who are poor, but in other countries, not the workers who are poor here at home, and the people who have access to you know, financial power, political power, what have you, there's there's definitely a sense and I think a certain frustration at local homegrown companies for not hiring more workers. I mean, that's why made in America Buy in America has such cultural appeal, because people do recognize that there are there are other people in the country who are benefiting from some of these trends, even if they don't understand precisely how there's definitely that broad perception out there.
4: All right. Well, JD, we've really covered a lot of ground here, but one last question. We we just can't let you go without a prediction. (laughs) Who is going to carry Ohio and who will win the presidential election? Will they be the same person? I mean, usually they have been, but this year might be different. Ohio might not go the way of the country.
3: So my prediction is that Hillary Clinton will win the presidential election, and I think that she'll eke out a small victory in Ohio. That's my best guess, though I recognize I'm going out on a limb because all the polls say that Trump is up by three or four points. But, you know, there's something to be said for a relative conservatism in, in Ohio. And it's not just the conservatism as it's used in an ideological way, but it's the conservatism about fearing someone who's potentially a little bit unstable or a little bit unpredictable. And I do think that, that that impulse in Ohio politics may prevail, even though, you know, there are a lot of angry folks, a lot of people that I love and care about who are going to vote for Donald Trump because they think you know, let's, let's sort of throw the proverbial middle finger into this presidential race, because things certainly aren't going to get better if we stay on the path that we're staying on right now.
2: Well, JD, I can't sign off without asking you how your sister's doing. One thing that comes across repeatedly in the book is what a lodestar she and her family have been for you. How is she doing? And what does she think of all this?
3: Well my sister is is my biggest fan and it's one of the the, the the most gratifying aspects of writing the book is that you know whenever there's a criticism of the book on Facebook, almost always it's my sister who's there defending me and saying don't don't you talk bad about my brother so she's she's very proud of me and I'm of course very proud of her. She's doing really well. I actually saw her last weekend and saw her beautiful daughter go to homecoming her first homecoming so it really is 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 just wonderful to see my sister and 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 a lot of my family back home doing well and they're my biggest fans and i'm glad that i have them in my corner we'd love to have you
2: back here sometime to talk about global economic trends and their impacts on individual countries and communities because you know again i do feel you've tapped into something here with your book Great to have you. We'll be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more people can find us.
4: And you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott Landman and Dan at, at Daniel
3: Moss DC. I am at Vance one on Twitter. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. See you next week.
1: Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.